This is our uh, sixth um, Christmas in uh, Boise. In August of 1978, Carolyn and I and our three children moved up here to um, Idaho from California. And uh, we did so because, as, as I told, uh, told the family, when I came back after candidating, I had fallen in love with the people. And I can say after six years that that love is even stronger. And I uh, just want to say at this Christmas season how much Carolyn and I appreciate all of you. And thank you again for all of your kindnesses and all the gracious and uh, godlike things that you have done for us this past year. We are just so very thankful for all of you. And hope that you have a delightful and a very merry, relaxing, restful Christmas season. Uh, I was out shoveling snow after the first snowfall of the season. Uh, somehow I wasn't able to get either Josh or Carolyn to go out and do it. <laughs> and I, uh, I got stuck with the job. And a little boy from down the street who often comes by to chat with me happened to be walking down the, the uh, sidewalk. Um, he, he was in a particularly garrulous mood that day. And, and while I was shoveling, we chatted away. He's about five years old, just a delightful little boy, a little Jewish boy. And as he was leaving, I said, uh, uh, Happy Hanukkah, Brent. And it just stopped him in his tracks. And he turned around and looked at me and he said, Are you Jewish? <laughs> I said, uh, No, but I know about Hanukkah. And he said, How do you know about Hanukkah? And I said, Well, I, I suppose most people know about Hanukkah. He said, uh, What's Hanukkah? <laughs> And I said, Brent, don't you know what Hanukkah is? He said, oh, yeah, I know what Hanukkah is. I want to know if you know what Hanukkah is. <laughs> so how do you explain uh, to a five-year-old? I said, well, uh, th there was this very wicked and cruel king who, uh, who defiled the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, some very strong, brave men uh, ran the soldiers of the king out of the country, and they restored the temple, and they... Uh, they cleansed it, and Hanukkah is a time when the Jewish people celebrate the cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem. And he, he knitted up his brow, and he said, no, it isn't. And I said, well, I think it is, Brent. I said, it's been a, a while since I've thought about it, but I think it's what it is. He said, no, no. He says, Hanukkah is when you get one present a day for eight days. <laughs> That was just precious. I, uh, <laughs> but it made me think of how easy it is for all of us to uh, miss the point of a thing. It reminds me again of the story I told last week of the, uh, about the woman that Carolyn and I were talking to. And, and uh, she was describing her activities during the Christmas season, how busy she was baking cakes and making things for her grandchildren and, and uh, beautifying her home and any number of things. And she said, after all, that's what it's all about, except for this religious stuff, she said. And I, I think she was teasing because she, she knows better. But uh, it just struck me as uh, almost symbolic of our times that that's the way we look at Christmas. What it's all about is the tree and the lights and the decorations and the gifts and children and family gathered around the tree and turkey dinners and all the rest of it. And then there's the religious stuff. And uh, what we have to remember as Christians is that the, the religious stuff is the center of it all. That's, that's what everything uh, centers around. The, the central fact of Christmas is the incarnation. That's the central miracle of Christian faith, and that's the central fact of the Christmas season. 
It's the time when God became a man. Have you ever thought about that? That that little bitty baby with the red uh, 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 squinty eyes and pinched up face crying in that, in that manger was God himself. As George MacDonald says, God contracted to a span. The infinite become infinitesimally small. That's really what Christmas is all about. And unless we, we keep that in mind, we're likely to get caught up in all the other things that are going on and forget the central fact of Christmas. It's the incarnation. The fact that God became a man. The hopes and fears of all the years were met in him that night. Uh, let's, uh, let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and see how it all came about. Luke chapter 1. Some of you will remember uh, our president's immortal words when the uh, astronauts returned from their moon landing. Uh, I'm quoting him. He says, let me close off with just one thing. I was thinking, you know, as you came down, it had only been eight days, just a week, a long week, that this is the greatest week in the history of the world since the creation. And I remember thinking when I heard him utter those words, now you know better than that. You know, I, I can, uh, the kindest thing I can say is that he must have been overcome by emotion. Because that was not the greatest event that took place in history. You know, from our standpoint, looking back on it, any number of things have happened in history that are far more significant than the fact that we landed a man on the moon. But uh, for us as Christians, the most significant fact in history, the greatest event, the greatest day in history was the day when God touched down on, on planet Earth, when, when he became a part of the human race. And Luke describes how it all came about in chapter 1, verse 28. In the sixth month, that is, in the sixth month, sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Nothing very remarkable about Nazareth, just a tiny little town, about the size of Cuna, perhaps. A couple of grocery stores, filling station or two, restaurant. Really not, uh, not a very big town at all. Nothing remarkable about the town. As a matter of fact, it's so obscure that Luke has to state that it's a city in Galilee because his readers wouldn't know where it was located. Uh, and he appeared to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. The, the two people who were involved in this episode were, were really unremarkable people. There are any number of men who bore the name Joseph or Yosef. Carpenter, poor. That's not unremarkable. Most carpenters I know are poor. He was young. Late teenagers, probably. People married much earlier then. Uh, it's a very common name. Not many people would have heard of Joseph if this particular uh, story had not found its way into the Gospels. Uh, we're told that the young lady's name was Mary, and she was very young, probably, according to some of the early church history, uh, historians, 14, maybe 13. Uh, young women married very young back in those days. Uh, her name is unremarkable. Miriam is actually her name. She was named for uh, Moses' sister. She's nicknamed Maria, and that's where we get our name Mary. Very common name. Weed common in that, in that time and in that part of the world. The thing that was remarkable was the, uh, was the announcement. 
Coming in, he said to her, Gabriel said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Whenever that particular form of address is delivered to someone in the Old Testament, it always entails something very significant. Whenever God had a great commission for someone, something very significant to do, he always introduced that commission with this formula, the Lord is with you. So Mary knew that something special was up. And uh, she was troubled, we're told, Luke tells us, at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. What great thing was she being asked to do? The angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You've been, you're a recipient of grace. You've been filled with grace, is the way the text puts it. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Sounds very much like Isaiah 7, doesn't, the passage, doesn't it? The passage we talked about last week, same formula. She would identify it immediately with Isaiah 7. You shall conceive and bring forth a son, but in this case, you shall call his name Jesus. Joshua is the Old Testament form. The Lord who saves is the significance of the name. And again, it's a very common name. It was very common until the second century, uh, A.D. Quite common. Because uh, children were named in honor of Joshua, the great warrior and hero of the Old Testament. But we're told that he would be uh, unique. He would be special. He would be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will, will have no end. So she knew that this child would be special, that he was the one predicted in the Old Testament who would come of David's line, who would, uh, who would set his, his people free. He will reign forever over the house of Jacob. I, similar promises were given to the kings of, in David's line. Solomon and Rehoboam, Abijah, Ajah, Jehoshaphat, so forth. The other kings that, that were the descendants of David, they were told that the dynasty would endure forever. But here, Mary is assured that, that the son would reign forever. His kingdom would be endless. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Uh, if you just read through the verses 31 through 33, you might not pick up the fact that this would be a virgin birth. The angel must have said more, something that's not included in, in, in the story. Because Mary began to put things together and she realized that this event would take place before she was married. See, it's conceivable reading these verses that what the angel could be saying is that she would marry, she was engaged to Joseph. They, they were bound together in, in Jewish uh, culture an engagement was as binding as marriage, though there was no intimacy involved. So she could, she could start putting the pieces together, and she would think, well, I'm going to marry this son of, son of David, Joseph, and I'll have a son, and he'll be the Messiah. But something more must have been implied by the angel's words. Perhaps there's some note of immediacy that, that, that made her see that it, this is going to happen immediately, before her marriage. Because her question is, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Now, this is not a question that grows out of unbelief. Uh, if you go back into chapter 1 and read through the first verses of chapter 1, uh, the same sort of thing happened to Elizabeth's uh, husband. He was told that she would conceive and bear a son, and she was barren. She had already gone through the menopause. There was no possibility that she could have a child. And, uh, uh, and yet he was promised a son, and his response was one of unbelief. How can this be? But Mary wasn't unbelieving. She was really, really asking about the method. She, she was concerned about the particulars. How is this going to happen? I'm, I'm a virgin, and I understand this will happen before I'm married, and while I'm still a virgin. What, how, how does this sort of thing come about? Well, the angel explains in, 
In verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. This is one very clear description in in the New Testament of what we call the virgin birth. Although that's probably not the proper title for what actually happened. There was nothing unusual about Jesus' birth. It's a virgin conception that's being described here. And it's being described in terms that are very fitting to the episode, to the event. You notice how he puts it? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. There's no crass and coarse idea of, of, of God mating somehow with, uh, with, with Mary. Not, nothing like that. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the Most High, that's, that's the word El Elyon in the Old Testament, the Most High God will overshadow you. Some, some creative activity will go on, Mary, in, in your womb. And the result will be the birth of the Son of God. He'll be your son. That's that's the odd thing. He's called the son of Mary. Chapter 2. We're told that she brought forth her firstborn son. It was her son. And yet he is called in this passage the son of God. So he is God and man. Not half God and half man. Not like Janus, the Greek God with two faces. Nothing that grotesque. But somehow, in, in, in some inexplicable way, he will be a perfect union of God and man, fully God, never giving up his deity, never yielding his Godhead, his Godhood, but at the same time, fully man, holy man. No intermingling, no confusion of the natures. He is two personalities, two natures, and yet he is one. And it's blended in such a way that it's perfect. It all fits together. You see, from the very beginning, there had been a this promise, what C.S. Lewis calls the rumor of hope, that someday God would visit the earth and he would become a man and he would set things right. You know the story we've talked about any number of times because it's the theme of the Old Testament. It's, it's what, what Old Testament theologians call the promise, the idea of the seed. After Adam and Eve uh, sinned and plunged the race into, into ruin and death and disease and destruction and uh, entered into the human race, God uh, promised Adam and Eve that he would send the Redeemer who would be born of the woman. The seed of the woman, he said, will crush the head of the serpent. Uh, and in so doing, he will bruise his heel. It's the picture, as you know, of someone stamping on the head of a serpent and dealing to the snake a lethal blow, but, but incurring uh, himself a great deal of pain, much like a, a bruise on your heel. Uh, that's the promise, that someday a seed of the woman, a man, someone from the human race, would, would set things right. But, but somehow there's, a, there's the intimation given that this man is more than mere man. Because shortly after that, when Cain was born, as you know, uh, Eve's response was, I have received a man, the Lord. Now, some of our translations put it, I have received a man with the Lord, or from the Lord, but that's not what the Hebrew text says. And the NIV, trying to be faithful to what is a very obscure text in there, in the side note, puts, I have received a man, i.e., the Lord. Now, that's been confusing to, to Old Testament theologians, and particularly to Jewish theologians, but, but uh, here's the hint. See, just the first hint 
that the man who comes will be God himself who will set things right. Cain, of course, was not the man. And it was obvious that every other child that was born throughout history wasn't, wasn't the man. But there was that rumor of hope, the idea that someday someone would come who was God himself, not in human form, but God, a God-man, a perfect union of the two, who would uh, straighten out the mess that, that the snake had, had created. And now it happened, see. It happened to Eve. It happened on Christmas Day, whatever date that was in history, certainly December 25th. uh, That's not the date given in Scripture. We don't know exactly the precise date. But one date is as good as any other, since we don't know when it happened. Because it's an event that we can celebrate every day. On that Christmas Day, 1984 years ago, or whenever... Actually, it was about uh, 86, or pardon me, uh, 6 B.C. when it occurred. Uh, that would be, what, 1891, uh, 1980, 1991 years ago. There we go. <laughs> Math was never my strong suit. That's when it happened. And it really happened, you see. Now, theologians fall all over themselves trying to explain what it is that happened. And they find it very difficult to do because we don't have any good analogies for it in our experience. They try to explain it, you know, by the use of eggs, three things or one, or by the use of an analogy to water, that water can occur in three forms. But none of these illustrations never ring completely true, simply because they're not true to the truth. We, we don't have any analogy for this, this event. How can two things be one, and how can one thing be two at the same time? It doesn't happen in our, in our universe. But that's what happened. That's what happened. He was both God... And at the same time, man. He wasn't a God who looked like a man. He wasn't a man who became a God. He was both God and man at the same time. Now, because that's so boggling to the mind, almost from the very beginning, people began to have trouble with it. And they wouldn't state it the way the New Testament states it. They wouldn't be content with the facts as they are. They tried to somehow reconcile these two irreconcilable elements in their mind and come up with something that made more sense. And so they tended to emphasize either the humanity of Christ or the deity of Christ. And they they wouldn't hold the two in common. And at various times in history, there's been an emphasis on one side or an emphasis on another. Almost immediately after... uh, after the resurrection, there was a, a, a development within the early church called docetism. The idea was that, that, that Jesus really didn't have a human body. I mean, he just looked like he did. Uh, that God assumed human form. And, and it's true, he walked around among men. But if you scratched into the surface, you'd find that really underneath the skin, there was God. And that this was not a real man at all. It was sort of a bogus man who looked like a man. There was a fellow by the name of Sorinthus who, was the, uh, ex- the, the, who proposed that particular theory. And he and John, the Apostle John, locked horns all the way through the, the early history of, of the church. We don't know that from the Bible. You, this comes from the church fathers who came right after the apostles. In fact, there's one uh, kind of humorous incident that the, one of the early church historians records where John and his disciples went into a bathhouse in Ephesus, and Sorinthus happened to show up, and, and John, who always strikes me as a man of, of, of high good humor, shouted to his disciples, Sorinthus, the, herit, herit, the, the heretic is here. Let us flee before the ceiling falls in on him. And they all left the bathhouse. But, but the whole thing was a very serious sort of debate. It, it was very serious, because Sorinthus was attacking the very essence of Christian belief. 
that our Lord is both God and man. Serinthus said, no, not a real man. He just looked like a man. Uh, that's why John m- makes the particular emphases that he makes in his writings. If you've ever wondered why John takes the particular approach that he takes, why his gospel is so different from the other gospels, why it isn't even included with the so-called synoptic gospels, that's why. It's because he has something else in mind. He, he's concerned about this heresy that was making its way through the church, that Jesus is not a real man. He's just a kind of pretend man. And John wanted to nip that one in the bud before it, it, it did any great damage. For, for example, he starts out his gospel. You know how he starts it out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's why he emphasizes so much uh, both Jesus' deity and his humanity. You, you sometimes will read uh, commentaries and some will say, well, no, the emphasis of the Gospel of John is, is on the deity of Christ. And uh, uh, he uses the signs to prove that he is the Son of God. These are written, John says, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's clearly John's emphasis is on the deity of Christ. But at the same time, John is the one that, that emphasizes the humanity of Christ, that, that he, he became thirsty, that he was tired, that he, uh, that he uh, wept over the, the grave of Lazarus, that he ate with the disciples. His emphasis on the humanity of Christ as well, see. So that there is a double emphasis in the book, that he is both God and man at the same time. No commingling of the substances. He's both God and man, see. Separate, and yet he's one person. And then you get to his little epistle of 1 John, and you know how he starts that one out. He says, That which we have seen and heard, what we have gazed upon, what we have handled with our hands, we declare to you. That, that word of life. He's talking about the Lord Jesus. And he touched him. They, they probably, as men will do, they scuffled around and they, they, they did all the things that, that people do when they're together as friends. And he saw that he was a real man, not a, not a fake man. He was, he was the real thing. And later in his book, he says something that confuses a lot of people, but it's really very easy when you understand when you understand the background. He says, he came of water and of blood. Well, if you understand the background, then you know why he said that. In, 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 uh, in that culture, a water, uh, water symbolized birth. If you've seen a birth, you, you understand what he's talking about. Birth is a, is a water birth. People are born through water. And uh, he's simply saying that Jesus was born. Through, normal process, through the normal process. He went through the normal process of gestation and, and delivery and birth. Nothing unusual about it. He was, a, he was a real man. And he came through blood. That is, when his side was pierced, out came real blood. He bled human blood. It wasn't, a, uh, it wasn't any, any fakery about it. It was the real thing. See that? He's concerned that people understand that he's the real thing. He's fully man, but at the same time, he's fully God. And uh, then a bit later, when he wrote the, the little letter we call Second John, uh, he, he says, this thing that we believe goes back to the beginning, to the historic origin. It's not theology. It has to do with history. We saw it. We looked upon it. We felt it. We, we know that Jesus came in the flesh is the word that he uses. He says, if anybody comes to your house and doesn't bring this doctrine, that is that Jesus has come in the flesh, don't believe him. Don't have anything to do with him. Don't trust him. See? Because it's important that we understand that he is both man and God. 
Now, unfortunately, I think we as evangelicals tend to emphasize the deity of Christ, uh, and, and we diminish to some extent his humanity. Those that are a bit more liberal in their theology tend to emphasize his humanity and diminish his deity, where the truth lies in a full and complete, uh, uh, in a statement of both. He is fully God and he is fully man at the same time, joined in two natures. See? Man is you acting as you would expect man to act. Man ex- acting as you would expect God to act. See? Caring, serving, giving. The perfect union of these two natures in one person. That's the incarnation. God became flesh, you see. Now, uh, unfortunately, over, over the years, uh, the theologians got into the act. Um, I, I don't have anything against theologians, really. I, uh, I, I think that they often have a, a very useful part to play in helping us sort these things out. But sometimes they are more like beavers. They just dam up the stream. And I sometimes think that on this, the, the issue of the, what's called the hypostatic union, that is the two natures of Christ, uh, there was an attempt to try to explain something that basically is inexplicable. They, they, it, was so, it's, it makes such, so little sense to us, simply because we don't have the analogies for it, that the mind is not at rest until somehow it resolves this thing. And the church went through hundreds of years of, of discussion and debate on this thing, trying to sort, sort it out. You know, how do you explain it to people? He was both God and man, something the apostles never tried to do. They just stated the facts. But, but the church wanted to get this thing in a box. But it never would stay there. <laughs> it's one of those things that just keeps popping out of the box, keeps breaking out of the covers. You, you can't contain it in a creedal statement. You know, at one point in church history, it got down to a discussion over the smallest letter in the, in the Greek alphabet, called the Yoda. And the issue was whether or not Jesus was homoousia, that is, he was of the same substance as God, or homoousia, of like substance. And the only difference between those two words is in the Yoda subscript, a little, little tiny letter. But see, it was important to them to pin this thing down. Now, what they finally did is to uh, come up with a creedal statement about the 4th century. A bunch, bunch of theologians got together in a city called uh, Nicaea, in what today is Turkey. And they hammered on this thing and hammered on it and worked on it. And they finally came out with what we call the Nicaean Creed. Many of you have probably memorized it uh, when you were growing up. Let me just read a part of it. Uh, They say, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. It's essentially taken right from the Apostles' Creed. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, the homoousia folks won out. That's the word homoousia, being of one substance with the Father. By whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. He's talking about God. Came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And essentially after, after hundreds of years, literally hundreds of years of debate, they came up with a statement that's very similar to the one that Luke gives us in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. This one who's called the Son of, of Mary, a bit later in chapter 2, verse 7, she brought forth her firstborn son, is here called the Son of God. 
This one who's called the Son of God is also called the Son of David. David is his father. He's God and he's man at the same time. See, he's God who came to earth to help us, to save us. That's why his name is Jesus, because he saves us. That's why he came. He has always wanted to. This was his opportunity. As Paul puts it in Galatians, he came at the right time, born of a woman, born of human flesh. He came to save us. Now, there's one other place in the Bible where we're told some of the implications. It really occurs in a number of places, but perhaps most succinctly in the book of Hebrews. Will you turn there with me? Hebrews 2. I've done it again. I've run out of time. Your argument of Hebrews, as you know, is to establish the superiority of Jesus to everything and everyone in the universe, except God the Father himself. He is superior to angels, as he argues in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 1, he is superior to angels because he is God. In chapter 2, he is superior to angels because he is man. And God has envisioned a future, a destiny for man that is far higher than the angels. And then in verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same. That is, he partook of flesh and blood. That through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death. That is, the devil and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The incarnation made his death possible. And by his death, he solved the problem of death. By death, he conquered death. Uh, as Isaac Newton, I believe it is, says, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." Uh, how can we explain that? Well, it is unexplainable, except to say that, that he became man. And because he was man, he could die. And because he could die, he could solve the problem that frustrated us and thwarted us and kept us, as Hebrews says, from, from getting the glory and honor that is rightfully ours as God's highest uh, order of creation. See, it's sin that frustrates, frustrates us and keeps us from being what a man or a woman is intended to be. It's death that keeps us looking at our, at our watches all the time because we know our time is short. It's death that keeps reminding us of our limitations. And no one can solve the problem of death except the God. Uh, except God who became the man, Jesus Christ. And because he became man and shared in flesh and blood, he could, he could spill his blood. He could give up his life for us and thus solve the problem of death. I've had two opportunities over the last uh, three weeks to speak uh, in classes at BSU on the subject of death and dying. And in every case, I find that the discussion just casts a pall over the class. They will hardly say anything when I'm done because nobody likes to face death. It's, it, we all think of ourselves as immortal until... Someone in our life is taken out, and then we realize we're not. As Ecclesiastes says, there's more reality at a funeral than at a party, because at least at a funeral you have to face things as they really are. As the little, little plaque puts it, you can't get out of, uh, out of life alive. Uh, we're going to get out of it any other way than, than through death. And our Lord has delivered us from that fear. We, we still die. But he has extracted from death its fear. He's taken away its sting, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. And then in verses 16 and following, we're told that he, he assuredly does not give help to the angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. He didn't die for angels. He died for man, for mankind. 
Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Uh, I'm so frustrated because I had so much I wanted to say on this uh, particular subject. Let me just make a couple of comments and, and leave it there. Leave it with you for some future study. What he did was to assume our humanity fully so that he could understand precisely what we go through. Later in chapter 4, he says, Jesus was tempted in all points, yet without sin. And it, and it occurs to me that one of the ways to get rid of temptation is to sin. You know, the pressure's off once you sin. You, you know, you, you struggle against uh, self-pity. You struggle against uh, moodiness. You struggle against uh, uh, taking someone's head off in your family because you're, you're tired and... and uh, uh, innervated by all the rush during the Christmas season. You, you, you struggle against sexual temptation. And then when you succumb, the pressure's off, you see. But our Lord never succumbed, never once. So the heat was always on. The stress was always there. The pressure was always there, you see. He felt it. He knows what you feel when the pressure is on. He knows what it's like to be human and to face all the limitations of our, of our humanity. Uh, He knows what it's like to sin, although he himself never sinned, because on the cross he experienced the full weight of our our sinfulness. He experienced all the humiliation and all the limitations of our our humanness, you see. John White tells a story about a time when he was was, uh, a resident in a hospital up in in Canada, and uh, he was called on to do volunteer service in a clinic, a venereal disease clinic, in one of the poor sections of, of the town where this hospital was located. Made his way down to the clinic one day and uh, went by a long line of men. They were waiting for medication, and he made his way up to the intern at the head of the line. And uh, he said, uh, they told me to report to the clinic. The intern says, okay, go to the end of the line. And Dr. White says, no, you don't understand. I'm a doctor. And the intern says, uh, well, doctors get it too. Go to the end of the line. <laughs> and uh, he, he makes the point that in some very real way, that's the kind of ignominy and shame and an embarrassment that our Lord had to go through time and time again because he was in line with us, you see. He, as Hebrews puts it, he was not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He identified with us. He understands. And therefore, as Hebrews tells us, he is able to give suckers, the way the old, the old translation put it, and I've always liked that, he's able to give help. He's able to give us aid. He understands. He cares. He knows. He's not put off by our sin. He's not embarrassed by us when we fail. He, he, he's in line with us. He wants to move in and give us the kind of help that we need. Now, that's what the incarnation means, you see. That's the significance of it. Let's, in, in closing, look at that, at that passage in Hebrews 4 that I quoted just a moment ago. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As Pascal put it, Jesus is the God whom we can approach without pride and before whom we can humble ourselves without despair. He knows, you see. He understands. He cares. And he can do something about the circumstances that we have to, have to face. The circumstances we live in because he's lived in them. He understands them fully. He can sympathize with us. And he can give us power to live as he lived. 
The thing to remember is that our Lord didn't conquer in life simply because he was God. It's because he was a man dependent upon God. He always lived on that in that basis. And as Jesus puts it in John 6, as the living Father has sent me and I live because of the Father, so he that eats me will live because of me. We can have the same power that empowered him. I uh, rarely have this sort of thing happen, but last week a young man came into my office and sat down in, in, my, in one of the chairs in my office. And first thing he said to me, without any pleasantries at all, was, I, I want to commit my life to Christ. And I said, uh, why? He said, uh, because I stand to come into a great deal of money in a few weeks. And I've seen what money can do to my family. I know it's corrupting. I need a power greater than the power of money to control my life. And you see, that's, that's what the Lord can do when he comes into our life. He can give us a power greater than any power that's dominating us, that's tyrannizing us now. He understands. He cares. He's not disgusted with us. He's not put off by our failure. He runs to our aid. See, he came from heaven to earth because he wanted to. Not because he had to. Not because he was forced to. But because he wanted to. And now he wants to come to your aid and to mine when we find ourselves in time of need. Let's pray. Father, with the, with the angels, we can only adore you. That's the only legitimate response to this truth. And uh, we want this, this time, this special season, to be a time of worship and adoration and expression of, of the love that's in our hearts and the devotion that we feel to you uh, for what you've done for us. Thank you for being our Savior for saving us from our sin, saving us from death, saving us from our our limitations and our weakness and our futility, and coming to rescue us and giving us uh, uh, the quality of victory that characterized your life. We thank you for that, Lord, and and may we center on that in our thoughts during this season and not not permit our, our thoughts to be taken captive by what's happening around us in the world. Help us to remember the Incarnation and to thank you for it. And we do thank you today for it. In Jesus' name, amen.